this is a this is a series that we're in. We're calling On the Road, fifth week. And in this series, we're exploring the things that God uses to develop our trust and confidence in Him because we're learning as our confidence and trust in God grows, our intimacy grows. And as our intimacy grows, our relationship with God grows, our relationship deepens. And so far, uh, we've looked at several different things. God uses the application of His Word. We began by talking about that and we learned that, hey, listen, you can read it and, and, and you can study it and you can even memorize it, but until you actually apply it, God's Word will not make any difference in your life. And even when it doesn't make sense and it's unreasonable and it seems out of date, when you actually apply it and you see how God comes along and blesses your life, see what happens is your trust and confidence in God deepens and your relationship deepens. Tim Downs did a phenomenal job talking about how God uses relationships in our lives. And then we talked last week about private disciplines, spiritual disciplines. Jesus talks about when you pray, when you fast, when you give, do it privately because your God, your Father, sees what you do in private. And when He sees that discipline in your life, He's going to honor you and He's going to reward you. And what happens when you trust God and you set aside some time, you set aside some of your financial resources for what His kingdom and His kingdom and what He's doing in His kingdom, when you do that and God rewards you and honors you, see your trust and your confidence in God goes up and your relationship with God deepens. Now this weekend, we're going to see how God uses our ministry experiences and our opportunities as part of this process. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at maybe one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. I mean, even if you're here this weekend and you're only here because you promised your mom you'd go to church on Mother's Day, you're going to recognize this story. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, and it start, starts off a little odd. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What had happened is this. Jesus has just received word that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been executed by Herod. And he was executed because John was going around challenging Herod about his marriage. He was married to his sister-in-law. He took his sister-in-law away from his brother and he married her. And that was unlawful by Jewish law. And, and, and John the Baptist was letting Herod know this on a regular basis. And finally, Herod and his wife, they got kind of tired of it. And so Herod had John arrested and then eventually John was beheaded. Jesus hears about this. And after he hears about it, he decides to get away by himself so he can spend some time alone and process and mourn his cousin's death, John the Baptist. But I want you to notice in verse 13, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. In other words, the people hear that Jesus is going to go across the lake to be by himself, and their reaction is, wow, we'll just kind of cut around the edge, and we'll be there and surprise him when he gets there. Like, there will be no solitary time for Jesus. By the way, I used to, uh, have you ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And he's like, I don't understand how this all came together. And, and this is one of the things that used to bother me. How can Jesus get in a boat, go across the Sea of Galilee, and the people would be on the other side waiting for him, right? There wasn't a ferry service or anything back then, right? Until I went to the Holy Land, until I visited the Sea of Galilee, and it really is a lake, it's not that big. And I stood there and I thought, wow, if Jesus got in a boat here and went there, I bet I could get there as quick as the boat could. And that's what's going on here. Verse 14 it says, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, there they were, right? He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. By the way, that's part of the problem. <laughs> Jesus kept healing the sick. So naturally, they're following Jesus everywhere he goes. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So they're out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, send them back into town. They can go to Hardee's, McDonald's. They can stop by Bojangles. They can deal with their hunger. But notice Jesus' reply. He says, they do not need to go away. And he looks at the disciples and says, you, 
give them something to eat. Now let me just stop and say something here before we get too deep into the story. If you're here this weekend and you're a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I can promise you this, there is going to be a tension that you're going to face in your Christian life. And the tension is this, you're going to be aware of a need that is around you and nobody is meeting that need. It's a need that's not being met. Maybe it is a need like our special needs ministry. And I can still remember Laura sitting in our home as God began to lay this on her heart. And she began to, she began to do her research. And she said, honey, nobody's offering this. Did you realize there, there are thousands of families in the triangle. They can't even go to church because churches aren't equipped to help them with their children. They don't get to worship. They're missing out on that total experience. And God laid it on her heart. And she began to move in that direction. I'm so excited what it's turned into at Hope Community Church. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe you go to work and you think, wow, there's some men, there's some women here who could really benefit from being in a Bible study, right? And so you sense the need, and you sense maybe that God is nudging you to meet the need. But when God begins to nudge you, like, hey, maybe you should teach this. You're like, oh, God, I don't teach Bible studies. That's not my thing. I pray for people that teach Bible studies, right? And I mean, we do that all the time. And, you know, I hear all the time, somebody needs to address this. Somebody needs to do this. We do this all the time, right? Sometimes God is like, yeah, I really appreciate you praying, but I want you to do it. I want you to teach this Bible study. And we're like, well, God, let me just remind you again, I don't do that. It's not my gift. I don't pray. Understand, when God begins to nudge us and we respond that way, it's because, see, when you think about yourself in those situations, all of a sudden you are aware of what you don't know. You're aware, wow, I don't have the training. Wow, I don't have all the answers. Wow, I haven't been to seminary. And even if I did, I just don't have the time. But I'm going to promise you this. There's going to be a time on your Christian journey when God is beginning to nudge you to do something, to be involved and to meet a need. And we see in this story, when the disciples found themselves in that situation, they did the very same thing that we do when we find ourselves in that situation. They started making excuses. Jesus says, you feed them. And they're like, well, <laughs> Jesus, that's a great idea. That would be awesome. Then we could just hang around here and sing kumbaya. Nobody would have to go anywhere. But Jesus, here's the problem, verse 17. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. In other words, Jesus, even if we wanted to, we can't do it. We aren't prepared. We're not equipped. You've got the wrong guys. But it's interesting how Jesus responds in verse 18. He says, well, just bring it here to me. You got five pieces of bread and two fish? Bring it to me, right? Just give me what you got. And what's interesting, especially like say you study the life of Moses, you see this over and over again in the lives of characters in the Bible. I mean, God said to Moses through the burning bush, you're going to be my deliverer. Now let's back up. At the age of 40, Moses killed an Egyptian after being raised in Pharaoh's household, escapes to the backside of the Sinai Desert where he's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. You want to talk about a dead-end job. Now he's 80, and God says, you're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to deliver my people. Aren't you excited? And Moses came up with every excuse in the world why he was not qualified, he was not the man, why he could not do it. And finally, there's that great conversation, that great confrontation when God says to Moses, Moses, what do you have in your hand? And Moses says a staff, but understand it wasn't just a staff. I mean, for a shepherd, for Moses, this was his identity, right? A staff for a shepherd, I mean, you rested on it when you were tired. You negotiated difficult terrain. You know, you kept wild animals away from the sheep. You kept the sheep together. I mean, it was your connection to life. So God says, Moses, what do you have in your hand? All I got is a staff. God says, throw it down. Throws it down. What happens? Becomes a serpent. God says, pick it up by its tail. See, the throwing it down part was the easy part, right? So Moses picks it back up, and it turns back into a staff. And here's the cool thing. Moses then used that staff to part the Red Sea. 
He then used that staff to get water out of a rock. My point is that sometimes the very thing we have in our hand, if we'll just give it to God, that is the thing that he will use to do amazing things in our life with, right? And I got to tell you, I think that's the way Jesus responds to all of us. When we're sitting around making every excuse in the world why we're not the person and we can't get it done, I think this is what he says to us. Just bring me what you have. Just bring me what you have. But God, listen, <laughs> I'm kind of new at this. I barely know how to find Genesis. Well, just bring me what you know. But God, you don't understand. I'm busy. I don't have that much time. Well, just bring me the time you have. Well, God, I, I just don't have all the answers. What if they ask me answers I can't answer? Well, just bring me the answers you have. But God, I don't have that much experience. Well, just bring me the experience you have. And so that's what the disciples do in verse 19. They gave Jesus what they had. And notice what Jesus did. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples. I mean, there's so much in this story like I've never seen before. Because imagine this. The disciples, all 12 of them, they're now standing there with this little basket of food, probably enough for them to eat dinner themselves and maybe, or lunch themselves, and maybe enough leftovers for dinner, right? But understand, as they're standing there staring at Jesus with a little basket of bread and fish, sitting behind them, Matthew tells us later on, is a crowd. And, and, and Matthew says the crowd was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Well, let's add women and children in. We're not just talking about 5,000. Often it's Jesus feeds the 5,000. We're talking 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 thousand people and these guys are standing there with their little you know basket of food thinking thank you but what exactly do we do with this are they still back there you know are they they're still sitting there are they still hungry right but I love this part of the story because the disciples they did what they knew how to do because that's all they could do right verse 19 the disciples turned around and gave them to the people now let's be honest, they had no idea how to feed that many people with that little food. But you know what? They knew how to serve the food they had. So they turned around and they did what they knew how to do, trusting that Jesus was going to do what only he could do. And I am telling you in the same way. And your Christian journey, when you start to feel that internal nudging of God saying, I want you to serve, I want you to sign up, I want you to go on that trip to Haiti, I want you to get outside of your comfort zone. When you feel that and you have every excuse in the world why you can't do it, why you're not the person. See, our responsibility at that moment, it is very, very simple. This is what we do. We just do what we know how to do and then we trust God to do what only he can do. By the way, let me just say this, this in that moment, that tension you're feeling in that moment, that fear that you're feeling in that moment when God begins to nudge you, let me tell you what it is. It's your trust in God muscle being stretched. In other words, God is doing something on the inside of you to prepare you for something. It's, it's God exercising and growing your trust in him. The fear, the uneasiness that you're feeling, it's not just about your fear. You're going to have some fear. It's not just about your insecurity. You're going to feel insecure. It is bigger than that. Understand, when God begins to nudge you and you're not qualified, God is working on your faith. And what's at stake isn't simply the needs that may go unmet if you don't get up and do something. That's not the issue. The issue is God wants to do something new. God wants to do something refreshing in your life. And what's at stake is the size and capacity of your faith and your trust in God. Understand, when God begins to nudge you, that's what's at stake. That's what's always at stake. 
So you got to understand in those moments, the right response is always this, okay, God, <laughs> I'll do what I can do. And I'm going to trust you to do, God, what only you can do. I mean, if you study the great things that have been accomplished by God down through history, you will find this principle every single time. The principle is this. You will find somebody who said this. Okay, God, I understand what you're asking me to do, and I'm just going to tell you right now, God, I can't do it. But you can. So I'm going to trust you, God, and I'm going to do what I know how to do, and I'm just going to leave the rest with you. I'm telling you, every great movement of God since the beginning of time, that is the way God works. He picks someone and says, you're going to be my person. You're going to be my man. You're going to be my woman. And in the process, what happens, our faith muscle is stretched. And we go on that journey with God, and we come out the other end saying, wow, can you believe what God did? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We will miss out on all of that if we're not willing to first do what we know how to do. Look what it says in verse 20. They all ate. All 10, 12, 15,000, and they were satisfied. Now, this is always interesting to me. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Well, how many did they start with? 12 basketfuls. And they, they come back with 12 basketfuls. How many disciples? 12. How many baskets? 12. Coincidence? I think not. I think Jesus is like, here's a little memento that, to remind you what can happen if you'll just do what you can do and you leave the rest up to me, right? By the way, Jesus had a very specific reason for doing this miracle, and it wasn't just to impress the people, and even wasn't, it wasn't even just to convince the crowd that he was indeed the Son of God. John also recorded this miracle, but he had something that Matthew didn't add. John chapter 6, verse 5, it says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only, look here, here's the word, to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. It wasn't to mock Philip. It wasn't to embarrass him in front of his peers. It wasn't to put him down. Let's use the word stretch. Jesus said this to Philip, to stretch him. In other words, he wanted to see a part of Philip's trust and faith, faith develop that was undeveloped. And understand, this is why Jesus is taking these guys through this process. He knows that eventually, in fact, in just a few months, he is handing this entire Jesus movement over to these guys. And he knows that if their trust and confidence in God isn't strong, if it is not rock solid, he's like, it is just not going to work. And so all this was simply to teach these guys to trust him. So he says, give me what you got. And he took the bread, he took the fish, and he fed these thousands of people. And they collected it. And it's so cool. But see, this is what's interesting. Often we separate this story from the next story, but it's actually one big teaching moment. So the, the, the minute that this event is over, Jesus moves right on to round two, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed a crowd. By the way, have you ever wondered how hard it was for Jesus to dismiss a crowd? It's not like you people who leave the minute I start praying and you can't wait to get out. He's been healing them, feeding them. I'm saying, I bet when Jesus said, you're dismissed, they just sat there and stared at him like, yeah, we're not going anywhere. We're hanging with you, buddy. Right, see, but he's going to dismiss the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. 
And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. Now think about it. These disciples, they are on an emotional high. They are coming off of this huge day where they've actually seen Jesus use them in the process of a miracle. Not only that, they're each holding their own personal basket of leftovers. I mean, they're singing, high-fiving, life is good, and they row right into a storm. Now think about this. They're rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. They can't make any progress whatsoever. This is unnerving to them. This is scary because this is what they're actually good at. This is what they actually know how to do, but they're not doing a very good job. Look what it says in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus came out to them walking on the lake. So nonchalant, right? When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. These are men of great faith, right? It is a ghost, they said. And cried out in fear. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now this is what's so cool about this story. In that moment, Peter has an insight. It's like the light bulb goes on and Peter's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I see what's going on here. Jesus, he told us to get in the boat and to row across the lake. And he knew when we got in this boat and started rowing across the lake, we were going to run smack dab into this storm. There must be something else he wants to teach us. I think it's this. Peter scratches his head. I think he's trying to teach us that we can do anything that he asks us to do. If we'll just do what we know how to do. And then we trust him for what only he can do. And so he decides to test his theory in verse 28. Lord, if it's you, and right now, I'm really hoping it's you. Because I'm out on a boat in the middle of the night and there's somebody walking on the water. So right now, I'm really, really hoping it's you. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Tell me to come to you. Now, this is what is so important and we've missed it so many times. You see... Peter didn't just jump out of the boat, get excited, like, man, I'm trusting Jesus. I'm going in, right? He didn't do that, right? That's not faith. Sometimes that's stupidity. Because I will tell you, 30-some years of ministry, there's been a lot of chaos, a lot of hurt, a lot of disappointment, and a lot of confusion that has been created in the name of Jesus by thinking that way, by acting that way. Like, I'm going to do it because I want to see it get done, right? Peter understood the lesson. This is the lesson. Whenever Jesus asks me to do something that I am incapable of doing, whenever he invites me to do something that doesn't make sense, whenever he invites me out of my comfort zone, this is what Peter's thinking, if I simply do what I know how to do, he is going to do what only he can do. So Peter is sitting in the boat, and I guarantee you this is what Peter's thinking. Jesus, please invite me. Please invite me. Come on, Jesus, invite me. Please invite me. And the other disciples are going like, if you want to go, just go. And he's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Just shut up. I know how this works. He's got to ask me first. He's got to invite me. Because if he asks me, if he asks me, if he invites me, then I know that if I do what I know how to do, he'll do what only he can do. So Peter's sitting in the boat. Come on, Jesus. Come on, give me one chance. Please, please invite me. And finally, in verse 29, Jesus says, come on, Peter. Look what it says. Come, he said. <laughs> then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Do you know what Peter was thinking at this moment? He's thinking this. I don't have a clue how to walk on water. 
but I know how to get out of a boat. Been doing that my whole life. And I know how to walk. Been doing that since I was two. And now that Jesus has invited me, I'm going to do what I know how to do. I'm going to get out of the boat and I'm going to walk. And I'm going to see if Jesus will do what only he can do. Now this is what I want you to understand. As Christians, this is where God wants to take us. This is the road that we are on. In fact, I dare you. I dare you to start praying. We'll call it the Peter prayer. I dare you to start praying, God, please, 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 God, please invite me out of my comfort zone. God, I want to be used by you. But God, I need the assurance of knowing that you're inviting me out of the boat, that you're inviting me into this with you. I need the assurance of knowing, God, that you're in this with me. And if you will just invite me, God, I'm telling you, I will do what I know how to do if you'll show up and do what only you can do. Let me just say this, for some of you, God's already inviting you. And you know who you are. He's nudging you right now. You can't get it out of your mind. For some of you, it may mean you have to leave, leave your job. This week, I'm in staff meeting, and we introduce a new staff person who left SAS. I mean, that's the Disney world of jobs, right? She left a career at SAS, a long-term career at SAS, to come and work for probably a third of the pay, nowhere near the great benefits. I guarantee you we don't have the cafeteria and the gym and the medical clinic and everything. She came to work here. And you say, well, she obviously didn't know what she's getting into. Yes, she did. Her husband's been working here for 12 years. She knows exactly what she's getting into, right? But she felt God nudging. For some of you, it may mean starting a new organization. For some of you, it may mean starting a new ministry. For some of you, God's nudging you, and it may mean leaving the country. For some of you, it may mean that you're going to begin to volunteer in Kid City or student ministries. For some of you, you're in a small group, right? But let's be honest, it's transformed from a small group into a clique. You know what I'm saying, right? And maybe God is... Maybe God is He's, he's nudging you to, to, to get out of that clique and start a brand new small group where brand new people who don't even have the opportunity, whose lives can be transformed. You've got every excuse in the world. I don't have, know enough theology. I haven't been this long enough. God's just saying, if I'm nudging you, will you do what you know how to do? Right. And you've got every and the reason in the world you can't do it. And God's like, well, come on. I mean, you know how to fill out an application, don't you? You know? You know how to walk down a hallway, don't you? You know how to read, don't you? You can talk, can't you? Come on, I'm inviting you. You just do what you know how to do, and then watch what I show up and do on your behalf. So that's what Peter does. But notice what happens in verse 30. When he saw the wind, oh, man. When he looked around and saw the wind and he was reminded of what he couldn't do, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? In other words, Peter, why did you begin to look at your inability? Because when you began to focus on your inability, you forgot to trust me and you began to doubt me. By the way, let me just say something. I've heard this taught my whole life. Peter, yo, you of little faith, get back in the boat. I'm going to, you know. Uh, I don't think Jesus was chastising Peter. I mean, there were 11 other guys with no faith in the boat, right? You're going to chastise somebody, chastise them. 
I think it was more like a parent talking to a Peter. Wow, Peter, you almost had it. You are so close. I am so proud of you. Out of all 12 of those guys, you're the only one who gets it. You're the only one who understands. You're the only one who asked the right question. Peter, you were so close. Man, I wish you hadn't taken eyes off of me. And I love how it closes in verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Yeah, we suspected it back on the hillside with the fish and bread thing went down, right? But now we're pretty sure. We are all in, right? Transformation. Now, this is what I want you to know. If you're a part of Hope Community Church, you get to see this principle lived out all around us. I mean, if you're at any of our campuses this weekend, you're literally benefiting from a group of people who said this. We're going to leave our comfort. We're going to leave our security. We're going to leave our safety. And we're going to get out of the boat. We've never done anything like this before. We don't have the first clue as to how to start a campus. But you know what? We're going to do what we can do. And we know we can serve. And we know we can set up chairs. And we know we can invite people. And we, can, we know we can love the people that show up. So we're just going to do what we know how to do. And we're just going to sit back and watch, do, watch God do what only he can do. You parents, you love dropping off your kids at Kid City Student Ministries. Man, you love dropping off your teenagers at Pulse and Hazardous. And, you know, when you drop them off, you look in the background, you see all these incredible volunteers, you know, wearing all these cool T-shirts, right? And you look at them and you think, wow, they must be like superheroes. I mean, they must be like super Christians. How else can you explain someone actually volunteering to work with middle schoolers? How do you explain that, right? They're not superheroes. They're not super Christians. You know what they would tell you? They would probably say, wow, I wish I'd have been a teenager. I wish I'd have had a church like this. And as I think back on my teenage years, you know what? That was a stressful time. That was a tough time. And I screwed up and I made a lot of mistakes. And I'd hate to see these young people make some of the same mistakes. Man, if I could just spend some time with them and and maybe somehow God could use my life to prevent them from going down some of the roads I went down, I, I think it would be worth my time. They're not superheroes. They're not super Christians. They don't have all the answers. Some of them, they don't know any more about middle schoolers than you do. Good gracious. Some of them are so new in their faith, they hadn't even got the cellophane off their Bible yet, right? They're just average people just like you who saw a need and they just couldn't get it out of their mind. And God kept nudging. And finally they got out of the boat and they got out of their comfort zone. I mean, how cool is it that Ship of Zion comes to us and says, we want to be a campus of Hope Community Church. I mean, what they're doing in Southeast Raleigh is absolutely amazing. And as I've said before, we just don't want to make sure, we want to make sure we don't mess it up. But if we can come alongside of them and and provide them with resourcing and different things to help them do what they're already doing, do it more effectively, then that's, that's cool. But you understand it's possible because one day Chris and Jacqueline made a decision to get out of the boat and they decided they were going to go down in a gang infested, drug infested, prostitute infested part of town. And they were going to start a ministry. And I guarantee you they were thinking, man, we've never done anything like this before. But we know how to walk the streets. And we know how to talk to people. And we know how to love people. And we know how to share the gospel. So God nudged them out of the boat, nudged them out of their comfort zone. And 
They just began to do what they knew how to do. And if you talk to them and you'll get a chance, they'll, they'll just give God all the glory and all the credit for, for doing what only he could do, right? My point is this. Look, anywhere you find God doing something, and you're going to find somebody, and this is their story. So here's the question. In what area is God nudging you? And you're trying your best to ignore him. And you're trying your best to put it out of your mind, but it just will not go away. And just understand, the issue isn't, hey, if you don't volunteer, it's not going to get done. I'm going to tell you something about Hope Community Church and about the volunteers we do have. We will always find a way to get it done because that's what we do. And God is incredibly gracious to us. That's not the issue. The issue is this. God wants to do something to take your relationship with him to a deeper, more intimate level. But again, this is another one of those areas where you have to choose whether or not you're going to participate. You can choose to sit on the sidelines, never get your uniform dirty, never get sweaty. Or you can say, God's nudging me and I'm going to get in the game, you know. I mean, at some point, you have to be like the disciples, willing to turn around and feed those people <laughs> with what's in your hand, even though you know it is not enough. At some point, just like Peter, you got to get out of the boat and take a step, even though you don't know the first thing about walking on water. I remember a few years ago when we were back in California with that four or five couples, and we were praying about moving here to start hope. And, and I remember I, was, I tried to be that great leader, you know, by the way, there's an old saying, he who thinks he's leading but no one's following is only taking a walk. And so I often feel like that as a leader. But I, I could put on a good face, but see, when I would go to bed at night or I'd go in my office, I'd think, God, this is the biggest mistake in the world. I don't know anything about administration. I don't know anything about organization. I don't know anything about incorporation. I don't know anything about any of the Asians. None whatsoever, right? I'll never, I'll just never forget, it was, it was as if God said to you, well, Mike, you know how to teach, don't you? I mean, you were a PE teacher, and you teach the Bible, you know how to teach, don't you? I can teach. Well, you know how to love people, don't you? Yeah, I know how to love people. Then get out of the boat. And it, weekend after weekend, I, I sit here and I look out in your faces and I think, wow, I'd have missed all this if I hadn't responded to his nudging. So my question is this. Would you be willing to do what you know how to do and trust God to do what only he could do? Where is he nudging you? Would you be willing to take the first step? <laughs> Not because you're ready. You'll never be ready, but because God has called you out of the boat. This is what I'll tell you. If you will do that, if God is nudging you and you'll take that step, this is what, you're going to experience God in a whole new way. And it is going to grow your faith and trust in God like crazy. Because this is what happens. When God begins to use you, you know what you're thinking? Wow. God knows my name. And he had enough confidence in me to invite me out of the boat. And I am so glad I didn't resist him. Because I would have missed out on these things that he has used so much to grow my faith and confidence in him. But I'll tell you this, if you don't get out of the boat, you'll never know what God could have done through you. And you'll never have your trust and confidence in God deepen the way it could be deepened. And you will go to your grave, this is the worst part, wondering, what if? What if? I don't know what your life is like. I already have enough what-ifs in my background. 
I look back all the time and say, in that situation, what if? If I would have responded to God then, what if? There are even times in the growth of this church, I think, if, if I would have had the faith to get out of the boat and walk, this church would be making two, three, maybe four times the impact that it's making in the world that it's making now. So I'm telling you, I'm old enough. doesn't really matter if I drown. If I feel God nudging me, I'm going to go. And I hope you'll join me. Let's pray together. What's God nudging you to do? Where is he challenging you? How is he speaking to you? I would just encourage you, take the step. It's not about what you can't do. It's about what you can do. And then you trust God to do what only he can do. Father, this is my prayer for us as a congregation. We don't want to be a church where everything has to be done by staff person and vetted through a committee and process and process and good gracious, we'll end up like Congress and do nothing. May we be a body of Christ. May we be a group of people where you begin to work and nudge in our hearts. We're willing to stand up and to take a step and get down out of the boat and do what you've placed on our heart and what we know how to do, trusting that you will do what only you can do. And Father, I just pray that in this journey, you would lead us where our trust is without borders and there's no limit to what we can accomplish for you. In your name we pray, amen.